0: you know, we're trying to create a world where anybody can quickly look at a contract and understand how good or bad it is for them. And we used to think that world was five or 10 years out. We now know that that world, actually, that vision is we're this close to making it a reality for almost any contract type.
1: Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Modern Business Operations. I'm your host, Seth Colliner, and I'm here with my guest today, Otto Hansen, who's the founder of Term Scout. And just to begin, I don't want you to tell us uh, just a bit about uh, your background and your current role. Hi, Seth. Sure. Thanks for having me. My background is I worked
0: in startups early in my career, got beat up by lawyers a lot, had a lot of challenges trying to figure out how to navigate legal issues as a early stage entrepreneur, decided to go to law school to learn firsthand how to solve for some of the legal challenges that small businesses face. Ended up getting a job in a large regional law firm in Denver, Colorado, in their corporate office and practiced corporate law for a few years after law school. And that's where I started to get real firsthand experience with what I think is a big broken system in this world, which is contracting, contracts. We live in a world today where all of us are inundated with lots and lots of contracts. And these contracts, of course, form legally binding rights and obligations. They govern almost every relationship we enter into, both as people and as businesses. And what I learned practicing law was that because there are so many contracts and we, people and businesses, are so bad at processing them and understanding them and negotiating them for various reasons, information asymmetry, lack of resources, lack of time, all the things. But because we're so bad at reviewing them, many businesses behave very opportunistically when they create contracts. They make their contracts really aggressive. And when they hand a contract under the theory that when they hand it to you, if you're not going to read it, they might as well make it really aggressive. We win, you lose. That felt like a big challenge in the world. And what I saw as an attorney is that so much of my time was spent just fixing that problem for the clients who could afford to pay me to do it. And it just felt like a tremendous amount of waste and a tremendous amount of injustice that was happening in the world. And a problem that I thought there seemed to be a solution for. We've been out building a company called Termscot now for a few years, trying to solve that exact problem.
1: Great. Well, and the main thing we're talking about today is large language models or LLMs. And, you know, we want to get under the hood a little bit here. Obviously, like this past year has totally been the the year of generative AI and imaginations everywhere have been sparked by the use of LLMs and what can we do with them. And some people are terrified of them. And some people think it's, you know, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to humanity. And the rest of us are somewhere in the middle, but we do need to figure out how to use these extremely powerful tools. You know, everybody knows about GPT-4, but there are lots of other LLMs out there that people can use and are using, you know, especially for different use cases. And can you give us an overview just from your perspective and your experience of the sort of LLMs that are out there? Yeah, I'm happy to share sort of our
0: perspective on this question. I'm not the world's foremost expert on all of the LLMs that are out there, but as a company who's been in the space trying to solve a very specific problem in contracting, which is How do you quickly understand a contract in a reliable and accurate enough way to help people make fast and smarter decisions about what to do with those contracts? We have experimented with a number of large language models and our journey started years ago when one of the most popular large language models prior to ChatGPT and OpenAI's coming of age was Hugging Face and Open Source LLM that a lot of companies were basically engaging machine learning teams to take what was I think you could fairly say a vastly inferior large language model but an open source one that you could take and you could use it and make it effective by fine-tuning it by giving it sets of training data to teach it how to do specific tasks better and so we spent a lot of years working on that particular llM and hugging face ha- you know continues to be a player in the space so they still are one and they have released, Subsequent LLMs that are, you know, incrementally better since we've been working with them. Obviously, the most popular LLM is GPT-4, LLMs, OpenAI's flagship model today, GPT-4 Turbo, now available after dev day. Really exciting. I mean, that for us was a huge breakthrough in terms of what we could do and how we saw the world. You know, we're trying to create a world where anybody can quickly look at a contract and understand how good or bad it is for them. And we used to think that world was five or 10 years out. And we now think that we now know that world, actually, that vision is we're this close to making it a reality for almost any contract type. And it's so, so exciting to see that. So, you know, used to be hugging face for us. Now our primary model is GPT-4. So we're using it for the vast majority of our legal reasoning and the like. But we've also looked at a lot of other models. We've done some tests on BARD. Google's flagship model, now Gemini, though we haven't had a chance to test Gemini yet since it just came out last week. And we've done some testing on Anthropic as well. We're big fans of Anthropic's Cloud 2, now 2.1. We think that Anthropic has, you know, a lot of really interesting advantages and a lot to look forward to and a lot to pay attention to. And so we're in the process of doing even more testing on Anthropic to see how we can create an ensemble of LLMs to use different LLMs for their strengths and kind of patch together the LLMs to find the best, you know, take advantage of each of their respective
1: strengths, also take advantage of the different rate limits and pricing mechanisms and the like. So two things that you said that really stuck out to me, you know, one is that this is a saying, right, in tech that we tend to grossly overestimate what we can get done in a year and grossly underestimate what we can do in 10. So this is your comment of, you know, I thought we were five or 10 years out and here we are. It's like, yeah, that's that tracks, right? With the maxim that, that tech lives by. But the other thing, and more importantly, is what you said about how you started with the problem. And I think that's something that a lot of folks get lost in. You know, we're at this moment where, you know, you, you just described a, a whole bunch of extremely powerful tools that anyone could spend days, weeks, months, years diving into and playing with. And I, you know, I still feel like when I, I read around the internet and, t- and talk to people, yeah, you know, we still have this education gap of people to understand what these tools can do, but also those of us, well, those of you who are using them to solve problems, already we're already at this point where you're like, I have a problem to solve. What tools are available to help me solve this problem? And a lot of people are stuck on the, what does the tool do part? So that, that's always one of the things that comes up about best practices to start with your problem and, and work backwards and see what tools are available. So it sounds like you, of course, you guys did that. And then, you know, practically and technically speaking, and we talked about evaluating all these models, what processor processes did you actually use or do you, you use to evaluate the various LLM options? Yeah, it's a
0: great question, Seth. And it, it goes back to your elementary school science class. One of the first things you learn when you're conducting a science experiment is that you have to have a control experiment to test against or to compare results against. And so that, that control set, we call a validation set. And what we've done, I don't think this is super uncommon in our space, at least, is created a validation set. For us, what that means is we've gone through a large number of contracts, hundreds and hundreds, actually thousands, and basically mapped out everything that matters in those contracts and then hand-coded those. That was a big part of our machine learning trading model early on that I described. Now that we have that training set, we know what the right answers are. And so we can test different LLMs and see how good they are at predicting those answers and actually get pretty scientific with measuring results. So that's sort of like entry level part one is you have to have a validation set to test against, but it's not just which LLM is better. It's which LLM is better at which specific test. And in our world, there are a number of things that we're trying to do. We're trying to test contracts for the presence or absence of certain clauses we're also trying to show our work. So that what that means is find after you've answered the question of whether or not a clause is present, can you actually point to this very precise language within the contract that's that proves the veracity of the statement? And so one of the things that we've done with our validation sets is actually set up experiments where we can put two LLMs head- to head and test how well they perform, not just at predicting answers. But also it's citing to those answers. Another thing we do is ask them to provide reasoning. So explain your reasoning of why you think this is true or false in this particular contract. And then we'll go in and rate the quality of the output. And so you get pretty scientific and you can really learn a lot. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned, for example, is that OpenAI GPT-4 is significantly better than all the other models we've tested so far at most of the things that we want to do. Again, we haven't tested Gemini Ultra yet. It's not out. We're really excited. There's a lot of reason to think that it might actually do better than GPT-4 on some of these tasks. But Anthropic 2 actually did significantly, I think it was something like 20% better than GPT-4 on pinpoint citing to the specific language in the contract that proved the veracity of the standard. So that's what I, you know, when I said earlier, that we're trying to figure out what's the right ensemble of LLMs that you can piece together that exploits their specific advantages or strengths in different categories of work.
1: This episode is brought to you by Tonkin. Tonkeen's process experience platform seamlessly wraps around existing policies and systems, allowing internal service teams to do more with what they already have. Build process experiences that are personalized for each requester and use AI to automate the intake, triage, and resolution of every request. Maximize adoption, compliance, and efficiency with no change management and no code. Yeah, I I love the nuance there. I think that gets lost a lot. In a past part of my career, I spent a lot of time reviewing enthusiast PC products and it was always challenging to answer best. People want to know what's the best and it was always the wrong question. And it's like, well, what's the best for this application? Or, you know, there'd be two things and it's like, well, it depends on what give and take you want, you know, this one is a little more of this and less of that, and this one is the opposite. So, you know, there's no best you have to just sort of decide. So I, I appreciate the nuance there and how useful that is. Has anything really surprised you in that testing? It just shown up that they kind of either threw you for a loop or you just found super interesting and, and maybe anything that is not necessarily common knowledge it was surprising to me to see
0: that an LLM might be better at a specific task and worse at other specific tasks when you throw four tasks at the same two LLMs. That piece was really surprising to me. You know, I'm not an expert on how these LLMs are created, but my super novice understanding is that it's pretty similar the way that they're built. They're ingesting large amounts of text and studying the similarities and then trying to predict the next level of text. So That part was surprising to me that each LLM might be stronger and weaker in certain super hyper specific
1: tasks. Yeah, that's fascinating. It makes you wonder about how they are put together because it's a little surprising with that nuance. That's your evaluation. In terms of using these tools, talk a bit about prompt engineering. You know, it's a D word and we kind of know what it means, but I think that it's going to continue to be defined over the next year or so. But talk a bit about the importance of good quality prompts. Like, what tips do you have for people who need to learn this skill? Well, first, uh, to me, this is
0: just a fundamental skill for people to develop. I don't know that it's going to be its own class of job. A lot of people think there will be prompt engineers who are like experts. I kind of think of it more as like a core skill that every person is going to need to have, kind of like just being able to email. is. It's just how you interact with and give instructions to an in LLM. We think the key to understanding how to be a good prompt engineer, we've done a lot of this. We have a team of people who are basically full-time prompt engineers right now building basically checklists for reviewing contracts against, and they're instructing the LLM to look for this clause to you know look for the absence of that clause and the like. And so what we learned is the quality of the prompt has massive impacts on the accuracy of the AI or the ability for the AI to get it right. And that's not really that surprising. If you, you know, your prompt has to be clear, it has to be concise and you have to give it context. Those are kind of the three big, we actually call the four C's, (laughs) clear, concise context and small chunks of instructions, right? You can't give it too big of a set of instructions at once. You have to really break it into small chunks. So we talk about those four C's a lot as guiding principles. And that part one is like figuring out how to craft clear and effective instructions to an LLM. There's another part of the science that I think is interesting for companies like us who are building products off of LLMs. It gets back to what I said about scientific experimentation. Just as we're testing these LLMs to see which is more effective at different things based on a standard set of prompts, you also have to test the efficacy of different prompts. And to do that, you do need to have some basic experimentation infrastructure in place. There are a number of companies out there that are kind of building that infrastructure to help companies do that A-B testing against different prompts. So you can, how, how well did this prompt perform at the task? Let me version it up and try a variation, but start to track that data, version controlling and experimentation infrastructure to really get good at prompting. I don't think you need all that for just everyday interactions with LLMs. But if you want to create a scalable prompt, for a specific workflow, as we are, then you really do need to get scientific
1: about how you're tracking and measuring results. I I love the the specificity of scalable prompting. That's, again, a nuance that maybe gets lost in the conversation sometimes. But in terms of automating workflows, talk a bit about what benefits for your customers have you seen from automating workflows the way you guys do it? Massive benefits. We talk about LLMs because it's so
0: exciting, but there's nuts and bolts workflow technology that is... I think for so many organizations, even more important than implementing AI into a workflow. And what we've seen is, so again, we help companies review contracts. We work with lots of large organizations as their first pass contract review provider. And there are two ways that we interact with our customers. Some of our customers have basically rely on human beings to get a contract in and then forward it to us, get it into our system, and get the results back. The more sophisticated of our customers, generally, have some workflow tool in place that has a contract intake form where somebody in the business says, oh, I just got an NDA from our customer. Here's some details about it. And they hit the submit button, and it automatically gets routed to us for review. That workflow automation is a huge differentiator in utilization, and in efficacy. So we've got a great solution. It works really well for our customers, but only if you remember to use it. And this is, you know, I love workflow automation tools, and we're really trying to get more and more of our customers to figure out how to adopt workflow tools, because it's really hard to drive change management within an organization. If all of the steps in every process are just embodied in the brains of the humans or some document that they have to reference over and over. Like, oh, wait, where am I supposed to send NDAs to? Where am I supposed to send these to? All the, to the extent that we can automate that, we think clients are, that's sort of like the, the base of the pyramid that any good organization needs
1: before you should even really think about the other steps of the process. Oh, that's such a great answer. What is the best advice you've received in your career?
0: It's such a great question and one I've thought a lot about. In Colorado, there's a really common saying and advice that's commonly given. It's give first. And the idea behind give first is that when we're building relationships in business or in our personal lives, it's easy to get into transactional type relationships, transactional feeling relationships. Give first is this mantra and the The way people define it in Colorado is it's giving first when you engage in a relationship, giving something into the relationship with no expectation of getting something in return, right? It's going into a relationship with the attitude of like, how can I give to this person? What can I provide to this person with just the general expectation that by doing that and by bringing that attitude, if everybody does that, we'll build a really great collaborative community. And I loved that. I went to Colorado Law and that was a big, sort of very prominent mantra there. And I've worked really hard to embody that in my career, in my practice, in my personal life. And I think it's a really healthy and
1: beautiful way to live. Yeah, oh, fantastic. And in closing, is there anything you want to promote or share about yourself or your company? And if people want to contact you, what's the best way that they can do that? In terms of promoting anything about our company, Look, if anybody
0: listening to this podcast wants to learn more about automating contract review processes, please, please, please reach out. You can find us at www.termscout.com. In terms of reaching out to me, always happy to have conversations with folks about this type of topic. You can
1: find me on LinkedIn fairly easily by searching for Otto Hansen. Fantastic. Otto Hansen. thank you so much. Great conversation. I think there's a lot of detail in there that we haven't really talked much about on this podcast. So thank you for all of that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkin.com/mbo pod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the Tonkin community at tonkin.com/community.